We are going to be diving back into Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 21. You guys want to stand up, get that blood flowing a little bit? Let's, uh, let's read God's Word. Verse 12. Uh, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When his disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. All right, that sends the reading of God's Word. You guys can take a seat. So, to give you a little bit of an update, we are in Matthew 21. And this kind of, uh, the very last sermon that we preached in Matthew was the triumphal entry. And that um, was actually uh, the last sermon that I preached here in Matthew. And the triumphal entry kind of marks the start of the very last portion of the book of Matthew. The very last portion is what we call Holy Week, and um, it's kind of the last week of Jesus' life. He has entered into Jerusalem with this triumphal entry, and now he's in the last week. And we know a lot of important things happen in the last week of Jesus' life, Um, even what we celebrated here with the Lord's Supper just moments ago. So we are, are there. That's what we're doing in Matthew. Now we're in verses 12 through 22. And I want to open with a little illustration. I was in the public library this week here in Atlantic City, and I was walking around the library um, trying to find a place to work um, and and work on, I think, my sermon or something like that. And I was walking around the library, and I saw this book. Um, You know, you're walking throughout the stacks, and you see books and that kind of thing. That's what that's the library. Um, And it was the State of the Union um, speeches from all the presidents uh, from over the years, right? And so we all probably know what the State of the Union speeches are. It's those speeches that uh, the president gives once a year. I think it's in February. Is that right? February, January, something like that. And um, he kind of outlines what his presidency is going to be about, what he wants to see done, uh, what are some of the initiatives and all that kind of thing. Um, it's the speech that I can't stand to listen to, not because of the person speaking, but because of all the incessantly insane clapping that just goes on every two seconds. You know, right? you see, he says like one sentence, not even a sentence, and they all start clapping. And then he says another sentence, and they all start clapping. And it's just ridiculous to sit through and try to listen to it. I'd rather read it later or anything like that. 
But afterwards, I looked up some of the most famous State of the Union speeches. And um, there were some like uh, 1964, uh, the State of the Union speech by Lyndon B. Johnson, talking about his war on poverty. And that's kind of where a lot of the current um, welfare system came from or initiatives to end poverty and to help people develop them out of poverty. Another one was Abraham Lincoln's uh, famous one on slavery. But each one of these speeches outlines uh, something about this person's presidency and what they want to see done in uh, their tenure as the president of our country. Well, we see similarly in our text today, Jesus the King, what he does is he kind of gives us a State of the Union uh, address, as it were, in a way. It wasn't a speech, but it was action that he came in and did before the people there in Jerusalem to show them what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He gave them two very specific pictures to say, this is what my rule is going to be like. This is what my kingdom is going to be like. And so we see that because Jesus is, he's the only true Messiah king. He is the king, right? He is the Messiah. That's what Matthew is trying to show throughout the whole of its book. But because he is that, he is able to show us what the kingdom of God really looks like. If we ever wonder what the kingdom of God looks like, he's going to show us in these two paragraphs. And first, he's going to talk about God's house, And then he's also going to talk about God's power through prayer. And so first we're going to look at God's house in verse 12. And to give you a little bit of context, it kind of makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense that after he comes in, in this very um, kind of grand entrance, as it were, this triumphal entry, we call it, after he comes in, he's going to start talking to us or start showing us what he's going to make his kingdom about. Right? It makes sense that at this time that he would give us these two paragraphs. Verse 12, we just read. I'll read it one more time for us. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so Jesus came into his house, into God's house, and he didn't like what he saw. He didn't like it at all. Who who better to know what's supposed to be going on in God's house than Jesus? Jesus was about his father's business. It was his house. And therefore, he knew exactly what was supposed to be going on in his house. And yet, what he found was something very appalling. But if we remember, in the days of the temple, the sacrificial system of the old covenant was still in place. That means that they needed sacrifices that could be purchased and brought into the temple and sacrificed on their behalf. And so this was something that needed to be done, a service that needed to be done, these pigeons and whatever else that the people were buying and bringing into the temple. But instead of it being outside of the temple where it should have been, it was right in the temple. It should have been maybe something like in the marketplace, but it was right there in the temple and that made Jesus angry. That made Jesus mad. And we have to remember here that this is a righteous anger. It's not like a a burst of anger that maybe you and I would have, an unrighteous one, maybe with our kids, for example. It's a righteous anger. It was a good expression of anger that Jesus gives here because of what was going on in his house. And imagine this. It's kind of like us. If we were having church here, 
And, you know, right out in the, in the lobby or that we could hear or maybe right out even here, the, the uh, floor of Wall Street was doing its trading and selling right there in the middle of Wall Street or in the middle of church, right? This, this noisy screaming going back and forth, yelling, loud talking, money clanging, people doing business. And it's not that that was bad in and of itself, but that it's right here in the middle of our church service going on while we're trying to worship God. It would be distracting to say the very least. It's not why we're here. We're here to worship God, to enjoy him, to praise him, to pray to him. And yet these things are going on. So what does Jesus do? He kicks them out in a very uh, explosive way. He says, get out of here. He kicks them out. He turns over the tables. He flips them upside down and he gets their attention to say, this is not what is supposed to be going on in my house. But actually, what's supposed to be going on in my house is prayer. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. A house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so what Jesus is doing, he's giving us correct picture of what is supposed to be going on in his house. It's not supposed to be a den of robbers. It's not supposed to be a place where commerce is happening but a house of prayer and so we see here uh, we read at the beginning of our service Isaiah 60 or 56 excuse me and one of the commentators he points out what Isaiah is talking about here in the context he says God's house was to be or sorry he was talking about God's house to be a house for all nations and he says this from the beginning Isaiah says the Lord planned to call the outsiders and the nations to himself And so he's talking about this house of prayer and it's not supposed to be just for one people or one one group, one nationality, but for all people. We talk about that a lot in this church because we believe that is taught all throughout the scriptures that God's house is a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples, black and white and Asian and Hispanic and everything else, the, the poor and the rich. And praise God that he did that for people like us. But at the heart of it, Jesus is using this Old Testament quote saying that his house should be a house that is focused on prayer. But he sees the complete opposite. It's being and acting like a den of robbers with this commerce that is going on. God's house, God's church should be a place of prayer, a place where we focus on worshiping God and enjoying him and talking about him and bragging on him for what he's been doing in our lives, just like we did in this prayer time. That's exactly why we have a prayer slot in the middle of our service, because God's house should be a house of prayer. But I want to ask a question for us to think about. How many of our churches can this be said of? That that house or that church is a house of prayer. Maybe it can be said of our churches that it's a house of gossip or a house of competition. Maybe it's a house of guilt and legalism. Maybe it's a house of hypocrisy. Maybe a house of of business and a worldly way of thinking, bringing that business model into the church. Maybe it's a house of community activities. And maybe not so much a house of prayer and a house of worship. 
And my prayer, I think our prayer, is that this church would be able to be known to be a house of prayer. That's why we make it so central in everything that we do. Because talking to God and speaking to Him, praising Him in prayer, asking Him things, confessing our sin, that's just a basic thing about a Christian's life and about the church's life. That's what we do. That's who we are. And that's why we have prayer on Wednesday nights and prayer on Sunday mornings. encourage you guys to pray with your families and with your friends and at your job and throughout the day, one continuous, constant conversation with the Lord. Because that's what keeps us healthy. That's what keeps us in a right perspective with God. That's what keeps Him working in our lives. And I, I pray that we would be known as a church that we are a house of prayer. That they would say, those New City folks... You know, I don't know all the things they do, but one thing they do is they pray. They pray a lot, and they pray often, and God works and moves in and through their prayers, and we see it all across our cities. I've seen it in my, my cousin's life or my uncle's life or my dad or my mom because those who are praying people. Well, the second thing that he says about God's house is it's a place of healing. Verse 14, it gives us this true picture of what God's church is, a place where healing happens. The hurting and the handicapped are brought to God there in the temple, and he heals them. It's just another visual, just like flipping of the tables, but this time a more gentle and compassionate picture before the temple. Say, this is what my house is supposed to be like, a place where people are healed in my name. A place where people that are broken and hurting can come and to be bound up, strengthened, sent out. Maybe it's a physical healing or a spiritual healing. Sent out in strength to serve me. And lastly, he shows us that God's house is a place of praise and worship. Praise and worship. And we see this in verse 15 and 16. But when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? You hope at this point the temple leaders would get it. That they would get what this house is for. And yet they don't. They have witnessed already Jesus' righteous anger in cleansing out the temple. And yet, they are still seeing these things happen and they're crying foul that this is wrong. Something is wrong. Why are you letting them praise you, Jesus? And they're mad, the text says, indignant, implying that Jesus should not be okay with them singing Hosanna to the son of David. Because that's something meant for the Messiah, for the King. And yet it's being ascribed to you, Jesus. What do you have to say about that? And he simply turns and looks at him and says, yeah, that's what's supposed to be happening. I am God's son. This is my house. And I am supposed to be praised and worshiped in this house. And yet you guys, the leaders of the church, you aren't letting these kids praise me. This is what they're doing. And he says to them, have you ever read? It's kind of an indicting question. 
It's kind of like asking a pastor or, or, or a, a scholar, have you ever read this part of the Bible? Which they should have said, yeah, I've read that part of the Bible. And these guys were the same way. Have you ever read it? And he goes on to say what they were supposed to have read and understood. But we need to see here that praising God is not just for the kids, not just for the learned adults, but for everybody. Everybody is to praise Jesus as the one true king because there is no other. There's no other political leader, no other uh, movie star, no other uh, businessman or woman that we can live and worship and trust and that can take care of our sins. There is no other. There is only one worthy of that praise, and that is Jesus. One commentator, he says here, this quotation confirms that the humble perceive spiritual truths more readily than than the sophisticated. And he goes on to point out the irony that the children are the one who understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet these temple leaders, those who are supposed to know the scriptures, they reject him. The irony that kids will praise him. That's like coming in here, and if Jesus were here today, our kids are all praising Jesus, and we're saying, who is this guy? Why are our kids praising him? And he's like, it's supposed to be the other way around, right? The adults are supposed to get that, if anybody. And yet Jesus shows this humble picture with the kids. So in the kingdom of God and in God's house, Jesus is to be worshiped. He deserves all of our worship and all of our praise because he is our king. He is our older brother. He is the one who saved us from our sins. And the question is, do we worship him as these kids do? Do we sing Hosanna to the son of David in our everyday life? Do we worship him? Maybe does prayer and worship and God's healing, does it describe what goes on in our church, in our homes, and in our families? Is it primary? Is it central to what we do here? Maybe we're convicted because we've let other things kind of creep in. We've let our own personal agendas or our own you know, drama at our houses or whatever it is come into the church and dominate that time instead of being a people of prayer, a people of worship. Maybe we've done that and God is trying to teach us something of the day. Well, the second way that Jesus gives us a glimpse into the kingdom comes here in verse 18 through 22. And he talks about God's power through prayer. Prayer is a very central theme to this passage today, here as we talked about earlier and even sung about earlier. But Matthew, he records this event that happens sometime after the cleansing of the temple. Remember that the text says that Jesus went out, he went to Bethany to stay the night, and then he came back in. And as he was coming in, He was hungry, right? It was the morning time. He was hungry. Understandably, most people get some type of hunger early in the morning. And maybe you and I kind of skip breakfast. We we probably should eat breakfast, but we skip breakfast. We just kind of go for the coffee and uh, head out the door. That's what I do a lot of the times until my wife gets me something to eat most times. And... um, and, and he was hungry. He was walking back into Jerusalem. And so he was to look out for food. And since there were no McDonald's, no drive throughs he had to do the second best thing, which was figs, okay? He saw along the road uh, trees uh, that produced figs. Verse 19, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. 
And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, I've got to be honest with you, and before we kind of dive more into this text, this, this scene kind of seems a bit odd to me and a bit confusing, right? I, I kind of want to ask Jesus, and not in an irreverent way, but what did the tree do to you? What, what, what did the tree do? Why did you just kind of zap it and it goes away? It kind of reminds me of like, almost like a scene from like Harry Potter where Harry Potter gets mad and he kind of just zaps an animal because it didn't do what he wants him to do, turns it into a different animal like a frog or something like that. And I don't mean that in a reverent way. I'm just asking Jesus, what is going on here? Because I'm kind of confused at why the, the tree had to be zapped, why the tree had to be withered and never produce fruit again. Because we know that Jesus, he never does things haphazardly. He never does things just off the cuff. He always has a plan. He always has a point and a purpose. He does things perfectly. And so Jesus, why did you do this? It sounds kind of funny, but why did you do this? And the text gives us at least one of those reasons. And I really believe that this was a teachable moment. A teachable moment that he had for those that were around him, an object lesson, as it were, to talk about the power of praying in faith. The power of praying in faith. And so let's take a look at this this, uh, text just a little bit deeper. He curses the tree and immediately it withers and the disciples are like, wow, how did you do that? They're focused on the how question. How did you do that, Jesus? Because we don't think that we can do that. Verse 21 and 22 says this, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so I believe that this incident, at least in a primary way, that in which he curses the fig tree, was about this lesson of prayer, praying in faith, and to show his disciples the power of God through, fa- uh, through um, prayer and through faith. Now, there are two things that I think we really need to kind of hone in on before we misunderstand what is Jesus is saying here. It would be easy for us to understand or misunderstand um, this teaching on prayer. And so first we're going to look at the issue of faith, the issue of faith. And so at first glance, it seems like Jesus is saying, if I just believe hard enough, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, then God is going to answer my prayer, whatever it would be. I think I can throw that mountain in the sea, so I'm going to take it, I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to throw it in the sea. If I just believe hard enough, is that what Jesus is saying? No, I don't think so. One commentator, he gives us kind of a healthy correction to this way of thinking. And he says this, but belief in the New Testament is never reduced to forcing oneself to, quote, believe what he does not really believe. Instead, it is related to genuine trust in God and obedience to and discernment of his will. And so remember that the Bible talks about even faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we can just kind of muster up inside of ourselves. Ephesians 2 talks about the faith to believe in God, the faith to be saved, the faith to walk in and walk out daily. It's a gift from God. He gives it to us. 
It's not something that comes from inside of us, but it's a gift. And you know, there are plenty of times where life is just too hard and life is too heavy and circumstances are too crazy for me to even think that I can muster up enough faith to continue on. It's a gift from God. So we must ask ourselves, what is this faith in? And obviously this faith is in God. It's a faith in an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And faith in God means praying for the things that he wants, praying for his will, praying for his purposes to be carried out in our lives. That's what it's talking about here. And that's why a lot of times when we pray, we're talking, talking to God and we say, God, if it's your will, because why? We want to pray things that God wants to happen. That's why a lot of times, where's my Bible? Oh, it's somewhere. Um, there it is. Um, that's why a lot of times we, we, we open God's word when we pray because we start praying scripture verses because we want to pray what God wants us to pray. And we want things to happen that he wants to happen. And that's why we say, if it is your will, So the second thing here that we see that we want to talk about real quick is the question of a blank check. Is Jesus giving us a blank check here? Jesus seems to be writing us a blank check, almost like if we would pray, God, give me a new house, and boom, a new house. There it is. God, give me a new church. Boom, there the new church building is. All right, how easy that would be. Or praying in faith, God, take my cancer away. Boom, gone. We're praying, you know, maybe for a godly husband. I really want one. Boom, there he is. Whatever it may be, a good paying job, no financial struggles. Boom. Is it just a blank check like that? Because it seems to say that. It seems that this is wide open. It says whatever. And it seems to be a guarantee. Jesus says it will happen. So what's going on here? So if your prayer doesn't get answered, is it because you don't have enough faith? Have you heard that before? The reason you didn't get that is because you didn't have enough faith. The reason that person's cancer came back is because that person didn't have enough faith. The reason that person's house, they got evicted from their house is because they didn't have enough faith. I think that's wrong and I don't think that's what the text is saying here. We need to understand what Jesus is talking about here and also the rest of Scripture that talks about the topic of the power of prayer. Remember, we just said that faith, that this faith is in God. We pray to God, His power, His ways, His plans. So if we are praying in faith, that means that we have these things on our heart and in our mind, His plans. One commentator put it this way, Jesus does not offer the disciples magical power to do whatever they please or to perform extraordinary feats for their own sake. All must relate to the purpose of God that is in process of being realized. So again, we can't pray, God, I'm lonely. I believe that you're going to give me a husband and there the doorbell rings, right? Or publisher clearinghouse opens the the door and says, you've won the lottery. No, we must pray in faith, in submission to God's will, to God's plan, and trust him to answer in a way that's best for you and for me. He knows what's best. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for good things. That means we don't pray. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for godly husband or for for God to bless us with a good job 
or for God to provide for us a good place to live or even a church building that we could have church in and that we could serve a community. These are all good things for us to pray for. And God commands us to pray for these things. But we don't demand them. We don't demand them saying, I believe God, therefore give it to me. Now we say, God, if it's your will, you're the boss, you're the one in charge. And so I'm going to pray these things. I'm going to ask these things, believing that these are good things. And I'm going to submit it to your will. Whatever you want for me, that's what I want. Whatever you want for my life or for my marriage or for my family, do it. Because I trust in you. You're the boss. You are a good father who delights in giving good gifts to your children. So prayer is powerful because it taps into the all-powerful God of the universe. Can God do those things? Sure. He can do it. He can provide a husband just like that. He can provide kids just like that. He can uh, provide money for a building just like that. But sometimes he chooses to answer our prayers in ways that we don't expect. And honestly, ways that we don't want sometimes. But he does it because he is a good God father he loves us and he cares for us and he knows what we need maybe if he answered it just like that in that way then we wouldn't learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn we wouldn't rely on him and depend on him in the way that we're supposed to depend on him and rely on him only god knows his reasons we're always not privy to why he does the things that he does but prayer works because of jesus because jesus sits on the throne and that he has defeated death He lived a perfect life. He defeated the power of sin and the grave. And he is risen and sitting next to God Almighty. Because of that, prayer works and is is powerful. Jesus said his house, his church, will be a house of prayer for all people. So as we close today, I just want to ask us a few kind of questions for us to think about as we go home today. Where is your prayer life? Honestly, where is your prayer life? Think about how you talk to God, how you pray to him, how often you do, how you do it in your marriage or in your family or with your kids or whatever it is, or you're just yourself. How's it going? Is it God-centered? Is it, is it consistent? Are you waiting on God patiently and in submission to him, saying, God, whatever you want for my life, bring it, because I don't want what you don't want. Are you making it a priority in your personal life? Are we making it a priority in our church? Are we fighting for that and believing that God works through prayer and then doing it? Jesus, what he's done here is he's given us two very vivid and very powerful pictures of what the kingdom of God looks like because he's the king. And as he came in, in his last week, he was still showing the people then and then us today what the kingdom of God looks like. As the true Messiah King, he is able to show us the kingdom. And he does through these. He is to be worshiped. His house is to be a house of prayer and praise all over the world from the young to the old regardless of ethnicity regardless of social class regardless of age all are to praise him for who he is and what he's done 
And he's worthy of our worship and our praise, not just one day a week, but every day of the week, every moment of every day of our lives. And my prayer is that I would sing, like these children did, Hosanna to the Son of David. Maybe not in those words, but in something like that, that my heart would be a heart of praise as I wake up as I, I go downstairs and feed my kids breakfast and try to wake up after a, a horrible night's sleep, that I would say, Hosanna to the son of David. You were sitting on the throne, and therefore I will praise you. I know that you have come, that you have lived the perfect life, that you died the death that every single one of us deserve, and you're, making, you're coming back to make all things new. You are the King Jesus. Amen. That's our hope as Christians. That's our hope. And so let's come to him in prayer even now as we close and then sing, I think, our final song. Father, thank you for your word. God, your word says that uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that's very true. And we've seen that today. Um, How many times do we come into church and we make it about things that are just not what it's supposed to be about? We're we're here to interact with you. We're here to praise you, to talk to you, to pray to you, to hear from your word as you speak to us. And so, Lord, may this house, may New City Fellowship be a, a house of prayer, a house of worship. May we be known in our city and in our area and around the world that that place is a house of prayer. People love God there and also love others. God, we pray that you would search our hearts and that you would know us. And if there is any wicked way in us, Lord, that you would lead us to repentance and lead us to a further walk with you. Help us to be a people of prayer and faith for the things that you want to see happen in our lives, not selfish things, Lord, that we want for our own gain or for our own um, pride or whatever it would be. Protect us from that, God. And we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday's sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New City's Sunday sermon.